Hey there, welcome to the Cause and Effect podcast where we talk about the human stories and lives of entrepreneurs and change makers here in Oregon. This is your host, Ryan Buchanan, and I'm here with my newish but good friend, Sherry Dunn, who runs the Oregon chapter of Dress for Success. So welcome to the show, Sherry. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. So Sherry, um, we met... I think a little less than a year ago through yep. our good mutual friend, Kali mm-hmm. Ladd, who was on this podcast about back then. She runs Kairos PDX. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the reason why she put us together is because you are this inspiring social entrepreneur leader around innovation and kind of reimagining how nonprofits yeah. should work in the end. So I'm going to, I kind of want to dive into that a little bit if we can. Yeah. That sounds good. Awesome. Awesome. So, um, this, uh, I'm going to start off with maybe some, uh, a term that isn't uh, super popular, but a lot of nonprofits rely on what I call like the knee pad industry, which Mm -hmm. is like Mm -hmm. getting on your knees and begging for dollars. That's right. Yeah. And, um, and I think you have, you've done some cool partnerships, Mm -hmm. um, where it's more like you're providing a service to the community and a different kind of financial model, a different Mm -hmm. way to staff that model. Mm Um, that's really more innovative and not necessarily always just, um, yeah, begging for dollars. Mm -hmm. It's more like pay to play or things Mm -hmm. like that. And Mm -hmm. I just, I think it would be really cool if you kind of shared one or two examples of, of where you're doing that. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's interesting, uh, culturally in the nonprofit world or just culturally in our world, right. Um, we think of the nonprofit in a very specific way. And uh, like I say, it's like alms, alms for the poor, please, you know, may I have some more, you know, and that's the stance that we expect from the nonprofit sector. And we expect, um, I think donors expect in a certain sense. And that is tied up in culture and history and a whole bunch of other issues which we could get into. But, um, but it's not destiny. It's not the way it has to be. It's not the way it always has to be. And so one way to change that is for uh, nonprofits to think of themselves differently, Uh, to think not just who can we ask for money, but what can we do for money? Um, In other words, what can we sell? What do we have? What can we provide? And I am hesitant to say in the for-profit model, because when I think about what I define a social enterprise as it is not just taking for profit principles and slapping it on a nonprofit, nor is it just the idea of, well, I'm going to make some shoes for the poor and then I'm going to get $2 off of every shoe. It's not just that. It's more of a hybrid. It really is a hybrid model that, of course, combines individual giving and still getting grants and donations, but also trying to figure out how else do I raise funds. So, um, One innovative project that we are shifting, this project is changing, and you might have a question about it later, but we can talk about it now, is our relationship with Treehouse. Um, Treehouse is an online training platform uh, that trains folks around coding and technology. It's a for-profit company, um, but they have developed what initially was called Talent Path Project, which has a new name. Um, But the basic concept is that Treehouse will engage an employer 
and the employer will pay Treehouse to train potential employees um, around a particular coding language, et cetera. And the folks is, who are part of Talent Path don't have to pay. And so the goal is to democratize access to technology, education and training and employment and take people to scale quickly. So it's, you know, seven months training, three months apprenticeship to employment should an employment offer be given. Now, in reality, I think it's a little bit more like 12 months because it, it can kind of go a little slow and the different things happen along the way. But let's say 10 to 12 months. So that model is one we started down the road with and it has and dress for success. You're you have the people, uh, That's a right. diverse talent pool of yep. smart people who just haven't been given that training before. That's right. And your role in this is doing a lot of people development around mm-hmm. the soft skills and things like that. Yep. Like it, it's really yep. is a, a needed dual partnership that's right right. that is exactly right we have the resources which are the people and uh treehouse has the the technology which is the training and they uh, develop the relationships with the uh, companies but our relationship with treehouse is changing so as we move forward we're looking at more of an equity model between us and treehouse where um so let's say you know, they go to an employer and an employer, uh, they charge an employer $100,000, let's say, for the training for 20 people. I'm just making up a number. But we, moving forward, we have an equity stake in that amount so that some of those funds would come to us. Because, as you say, we are, first of all, the keepers of the resource, which are the people. We are the people providing the soft skills, providing the support. There is so much that goes into this beyond just sitting down, learning a code. And well, gives, I remember when we had coffee, you gave an example of like an interview might happen at a time where uh, a young professional woman might need like daycare or like, yes, you know, that's right. We've had daycare come up. Uh, so, so for the treehouse cohort, to give you an example from our first cohort, we provided them $150 a month stipend for the entire time they were in the cohort. And that was because they needed to make sure they had high speed internet or maybe they had transportation issues. And based on some research we did with that first cohort, we found out the stipend actually needs to be more uh, per month. Um, maybe to help somebody not have to work overtime, et cetera, so they can spend more time coding. So this, what, what we've come to realize as a result of this relationship with Treehouse is that there are other ways we could pipeline our clients to employers and there are other equity relationships we can have in doing that. In other words, we can get some financial incentive and some financial support for the development of what is, quite frankly, a a raw resource that employers need, which are people. And why shouldn't we get some payment for that process, right? Um, Because we're putting a lot of sweat equity and a lot of work into the container. Let's say the training is, is inside here. We hold that container and keep it together. So people having crisis of faith, I can't do this. I don't know. Who do I talk to? Where do I go? I, you know, all of that work has to be done by somebody. And working in conjunction with Treehouse, we do that. And what we've been able to help them do is um, take this program uh, beyond Portland. So we 
uh, consulted on the Dress for Success Seattle expansion. So that was another earned income opportunity for us, right? So as nonprofits, we don't think about that. Like, well, we have expertise in things. We could provide support. So we actually helped Dress Seattle get a grant from the Gates Foundation and um, consulted on their expansion, the treehouse, and got paid for that. You know, as consultants, we went up, helped them set it up, helped them figure it out. We've been working with Dress Boston in a similar way. So what it really is for me is I look at opportunities for us to to get income, to utilize our expertise. And how can we how can we grow a line of income that isn't just dependent on somebody deciding to give us money? Right. Um, in addition to that, you know, we've grown our relationship with the state of Oregon. We have a contract with the state, which is a fee-for-service contract, where we provide employment service and support to people who are on SNAP, uh, food stamps, SNAPs, SNAP food stamps. And so I've looked at multiple layers of how we can do it. But but even with that being said, I have to say, you know, I, I posted this on some media, you know, um, Organizations that support women um, get the least philanthropy. You know, we get something, women and girls, something like only 16% of philanthropic dollars. It's just. And then at you as the leader of that being a woman of color, yep. it's even less. That's right? right. It is just really ridiculous. And, and the thing of it is, I mean, as an investment situation, you're investing in the employment and the stability of this this society. I mean, I often say to people, I mean, our clients are buying who's they're buying Nike shoes and getting mortgages for homes. And, and so an investment in this work is crucial to the economic engine. And it's also an acknowledgement of root causes. In other words, we, we get really jazzed as a society about, uh, helping with impact. So the impact of not having a stable home is you have kids who, you know, don't have a place to stay and you need all this early childhood intervention. But if you spent a percentage of that money upstream on their parents, on their mother, particularly, you're going to ameliorate the need downstream for some of that other support. But we don't, we don't look at it that way. And it, and it is, you know, frustrating when you see on the for-profit side, the kind of money that is literally thrown away in venture capital, thrown in the garbage, but that proven nonprofit organizations that are turning out a product, which are people who are employed, who are getting off public assistance, who are moving forward, we can't get that kind of money. And we need R&D just like anybody else. We need to try new things. We need to come up with new ideas. We need to fail. We need to do all of those things. But we don't, we don't have access to the kind of capital that allows us to do those kind of things in, in any measure. And it, it is uh, frustrating. Yeah. So... We're going to, this is, I want you to answer this and then I'm going to segue to mm -hmm. getting into your life story. But, um, your background is you have a legal background, you have a, a journalism and, and you're an anchor woman for a station and all of these things, but the fluency that you have with, um, kind of I'll just say for-profit like mm -hmm. venture language is mm -hmm. amazing like you mm -hmm. um, I self-identify as an entrepreneur and mm -hmm. I just you know four years ago became a social entrepreneur with mm -hmm. a with co-founding a nonprofit with emerging leaders but it's um, it's really like how did you get that fluency how did you have that mindset because it's not like you started dress for success from 
blank slate, you're coming in really as an mm-hmm. intrapreneur mm-hmm. into an, uh, an existing mm-hmm. system mm-hmm. and into a chapter within a larger. So it's mm-hmm. like you are very disruptive mm-hmm. in a how long, mm-hmm. hundred year old organization. Oh, no, dress, dress is only uh, 22 years old. Hundred sounds better. So. Yeah, yeah, just twenty-two. Yeah, <laughs> twenty-two. But yeah. it has this—it has a big yeah, reach a big for twenty-two reach. years, mm-hmm. right? So, mm-hmm. um, how how did you have that mindset when you didn't come from for-profit entrepreneur background? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Well, my mother says I had the entrepreneurial background when I was a child, and I had a lemonade stand, and I told the other kids to get out of my way because they were messing up my business hanging around my lemonade stand. So <laughs> she would say I was an entrepreneur from Jump Street, uh, uh, just as a person, uh, is about like how things go. Um, I don't know. It's interesting. I mean, you know, obviously I lost my, my undergraduate degrees in history philosophy. So I am a person who's really interested in philosophical pursuits and just examining and understanding life in general and how things work. So that's just, I guess, partly my nature. And then law school, um, is in very many ways, um, like business school. I mean, they're, they're different, but there's, there are things about it, right? You're learning about corporations, you learn how things work, you learn how things operate, you know, you learn systems. So, I mean, law school is law school. It's a, it's a generalist game until you practice and then you practice and you become a criminal lawyer or a civil lawyer or whatever, but you learn a lot about process, um, business process. I mean, what are you doing in law generally? Unless of course, again, you go into criminal, criminal side of law. Um, and then, um, I worked in legal services and, um, and then I worked in, um, media for a decade. So, and that's for profit space and really seeing how companies run and, and seeing the just gross inefficiencies of organizations, you know, and just really, uh, being observant. And I think, I think that's a lot of it, you know what I mean? And I've done a lot of different things. I mean, I was, a, I belong to this, um, solo entrepreneurs group here which people just it's a group of people just coming together who are doing things like consulting and um that of course in my spare time and I told the group I said well well this is like my second go around because uh, at one point when I was transitioning from law to, to news I did nonprofit consulting I helped nonprofits start do their 501c3 so I've had just a lot of exposure to process and how things work and then just uh, you know really quite frankly observation you know, seeing what I don't like has informed a lot. And then I, I mean, I read and I pay attention and I, I see what's happening around me. I, I'm old enough to have lived through both dot-com busts and booms, you know, the, the one the the, um, the young people don't know about in the 90s. I mentioned that to somebody and they were like, what? And I was like, oh, yeah. So, you know, and just have seen it, you know, seen, seen how it works and, and also spent a lifetime in nonprofits, uh, you know, basically, and seeing how we don't work, how what we don't have, why, and structurally what that inequity means for who does the work and the solutions that we have, you know. Yeah, and I, I think one of the things that we've bonded over in in a recent coffee meeting was what isn't really working with how philanthropy is set up is this notion that probably 98 to 99% of the dollars are coming from folks who look like me, even with good intention to come mm-hmm. into black and brown communities, mm-hmm. um, we're not representative of those communities. So there's mm-hmm. an inherent 
lack of knowledge or lived experience of that. And so how I see you as a, someone who calls that out in a positive mm-hmm. way mm-hmm. that's action oriented, um, and, you know, potentially doing things like we started a foundation within the company here around racial equity, mm-hmm. uh, closing the racial equity gap. And, and a lot of our, um, our employees of color are, are making the decisions on where those dollars are mm-hmm. going. Mm-hmm. Um, but really trying to change the narrative mm-hmm. of philanthropy and just like you're doing with setting up different models and things mm-hmm. like that. I, mm-hmm. at least that's what I remember when we were on yeah. a panel together, you, yeah. you're pretty outspoken about things yeah, like that. Yeah. I'm really passionate about it. I mean, you know, if I could do something in my life that would be a lasting legacy, it would be transforming nonprofits, the nonprofit culture. I mean, it just, it can't go on like this. We can't go on like this. Um, the solutions are not the best they could be who we attract and draw. Um, it just, it, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's needs to be different. It needs to be better because employees at nonprofits who are these incredibly <clears throat> overqualified for what they're paid for, mm-hmm. um, but expected to do so much, mm-hmm. like it's not sustainable for them to make barely livable wages. It's no, just it's not, crazy. It's not, it's not sustainable. And there's no particular reason for it other than it's a cultural bias you know there's a, a speaking of podcasts is running podcasts there's a podcast i really like by seth godin you familiar with him yeah. he, he has a recent podcast called bill gates has a money problem it's excellent if you have not listened to that about the problem with philanthropy about uh how much philanthropic dollars dollars are actually out there and how little actually are being truly deployed right. to the the problems and and how nonprofits are held to a much higher standard for illogical reasons than actually for-profit company. And if we change our thinking about donating to investing and we uh, assume that people doing the work are experts in their field and we're investing in that. I mean, I often give this example, you know, you don't go into Coca-Cola and say, you know what, I, I want to taste that formula and I, I'm going to explain to you how to change this formula. And, I, you know, as an investor, you don't do that in Coca-Cola, but that's the way investors feel about and donors feel about nonprofits. And that really goes back to our fundamental assumptions that working at a nonprofit in this work is not a real job. It is not a real nor a valuable job. And it is that is the reason we value it the way we do and the way we think about it the way we do. And then that then leads to who does the work and who doesn't do the work. So I think a couple months ago I was interviewed by Chronicle of Philanthropy about this discussion about people of color in nonprofits. And, you know, we know that people of color have less net worth than white people in the United States. And this is for many historical reasons. It's not any particular one person's fault, but it is a fact. So you are asking people who historically have less net worth to go work someplace where they make even less over their lifetime to sacrifice a double financial burden. I mean, any person of color who works in a nonprofit is partly crazy because you are financially double sacrificing right you start with less and then you make less and that's a hard thing to ask and and so therefore historically when we look at who runs nonprofits and who makes those solutions frequently been wealthier white people because they are the people who could afford to work there or else we have constant turnover and we're not able to develop a professional core to give real good solutions to clients right so it's all this impact um is how we think about the nonprofit. That's the root of that. Um, 
And I argue that the way we think about that is really based on a gender bias discussion, which is a, a deeper kind of discussion. I know um, a lot of folks are familiar with Dan Pallotta, who, you know, really has uh, done a lot of work about uh, trying to think about charity and what's wrong with charity. And, and Dan has some really great points, but I think he misses the gender piece about and his I think this was his source of constant frustration is not understanding it that the reason he and others who are trying to innovate are being hemmed up is because they're in a sexist system that is rooted deeply in sexism and classism and doesn't have space for that and so it, it gets confusing when you're in it as to why is this happening are, are you referring to like that in American society, we as men think that uh, we can kind of abdicate our responsibility and women are the ones with the heart and the the ones who can do that hard emotional work for less? Partly. Um, but even more specifically, when you look at the roots of charity and philanthropy in the United States, you're looking at a bifurcated system. So you have, um, and so this is Dan Pelota, but you know, you have this system of penance, wanting to do penance for being wealthy, that puritanical work ethic. And so, okay, great. So, but out of that comes the wealthy robber barons and uh, the people of the, you know, 1800s. Rockefeller. Yeah, Rockefellers. And they want to do good with that money, right? Um, so they give the money, but they don't execute the good generally. The people who step into that gap to execute the good are women and they're white women. And it is decided very early on in our history as a country that business is the purview of men. Men do business, women help. So we already have that dynamic set up. So then we bring money into the play. So men, they have the money. So they provide the money for charities, for help. And the women do incredible things, you know, get children out of coal mines and, you know, help with um, dangerous conditions like uh, shirt factories where people burn up. I mean, they do a lot of amazing things, but that bifurcation between what is business and what is not business becomes set because women can't work in business. So if women are working in charity and philanthropy, it is not business. It is not business like real business. That one mindset is still the fundamental operating principle about charities and nonprofits today. And that starts in our earliest understanding. So women, and again, this is really, we're talking about white women, um, find in philanthropy a home of agency a place to have responsibility and agency and to quite frankly run a business, but never acknowledged as a business. And, and in this system, those women don't need to be paid because many of those women are wealthy. Uh, they're the wives or family of the wealthy folks and they take up this mantle of this work and they also inadvertently then perpetuate the bifurcation because they aren't working in business and they don't get paid because women didn't get paid or they didn't really get paid unless they're poor women. Not fairly. Not fairly. And, and even back then, I mean, if they were poor women doing work, but not generally, right? So this is not work you get paid doing. It's work you do because you care and you, you help. But then whose remedies are though? Well, those women are predominantly wealthy white women and they're bringing their cultural understandings to those remedies. You know, you, like we talked about, they talked about uh, 
um, prohibition, you know, which is really about, you know, these immigrant people getting drunk and having illicit sex. And this was just terrible. And these I thought wealthy, that was just the 60s. Yeah, no, I know, I know. See, it's happened before. But you had these wealthy white women who are going to step in and civilize these people, right? So right there, we have all of that structure about who makes decisions, who, where the money comes from, whether this is real business. And so that inheritance comes to us today. Because, I mean, many people who worked in nonprofit have had this experience where somebody says, well, I had a lady tell me her daughter worked in nonprofits until she got a real job. We still believe that. And we believe that because its roots are in the fact that women's work is not real work. And the work women do is not a real job. And so even though now we have diverse people in nonprofits, women and men, we still fundamentally, even people who work in nonprofits, we still find this weird dichotomy about well, money can't be involved because you're helping people. And yet money's involved in everything about it. You know, so that that's really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about um, the past is present in what we do. And it's a it's an old system and it needs to be not just disrupted, but destructed and reconstructed in a new Un way. Unlearning process yes. needs to happen. Right. right? God, the past <laughs> is present in what we do. That is mm -hmm. fascinating. That's I love learning from mm -hmm. smarter people than me. Um so we're going to shift to okay. your personal story. Oh, uh, so we're going to go way, not that far back. <laughs> I just, yeah. That's pretty way. <laughs> <laughs> so when you were a six or eight year old little girl, you were, and you were probably in Milwaukee. And I was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, what kind of activities were you into? You know, do you have siblings? You know, mom and dad give, describe yeah. like home life, family well, life, uh, friend yeah. life. Yeah, see, I, I don't, I'm, I am one of these people who don't have a good memory of being a kid. I, it's just really weird. Like, as people talk about, oh, I can remember when I was three or four. I'm like, really? I don't remember yesterday. So, I don't know. I may have some kind of default thing in my brain where I just drop stuff. But, um, but I can tell you that I was born and raised in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And Milwaukee is a blue-collar, working-class uh, city. And, um, you know, it's a union town. It was until the unions got broke during the troubles. But um, that's what we call Scott Walker's reign in uh, Wisconsin as governor was the, is the troubles. But before the troubles, it was a blue collar working class place. I uh, grew up in a place that you don't see reflected in popular culture or media or myth. And I grew up in a working class black neighborhood. Everybody went to work. Um, they worked in factories. They worked in hospitals. They weren't. Um, they weren't the bosses. They were the workers. They owned their homes. They cut their grass. Um, they sided their homes. You could tell kids to get off your lawn. Nobody was going to shoot you. There was no. Uh, yeah, I, I. You know, it's interesting because Milwaukee now is a totally different city and has a lot of violence and it's just um but i didn't grow up in that place i grew up in a place where you could um this was not the 50s you were playing in the streets and playing the streets till yeah. the lights come on um and there was not uh there was no hint of 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 community violence now there's the violence in homes exists across time and space but community violence no i mean there was i don't you know, where I grew up, you apparently can't sit outside now. You might get shot. I did not live that 
You know, we sat on our porch in the summers, um, kids played, um, neighborhood friends, you know, it was a, um, but it, it is a place you don't see reflected. You know, you see the Cosbys, which are wealthy, professional black people, or you see Good Times, poor project black people. But there's a whole Midwest full of working class black people uh, who worked as part of union jobs, who went to work every day, who took lunch boxes, And so I'm really rooted in that. I mean, I am um, at my core uh, a working class person and that those um those morals or the that way of looking at the world with a practicality and what is the job to be done and how does one accomplish that job is really kind of woven into me I think so for fun though like where did you play sports or I was a weird kid uh, I think I established that important business journal article about me. That was the headline. Weird kid uh, gets dressed for success. Uh, so I was a weird kid. I have one sister and she's older than me and she has some, some issues that made her growing up complicated and made the rest of our, our lives also complicated. Um, but I was uh, a very philosophical and introspective child. Um, I drove my mother crazy uh, she reminded me before Google, I used to ask her a lot of questions and you have to call ready reference, which I guess you can still call ready reference. I didn't know that the library has ready reference. So, so we called ready reference a lot for lots of questions that I had about many, many things. And, uh, she bought me encyclopedias cause that was the big thing before Google. You had to actually look in a book. Um, as a kid, I was just interested in everything. I mean, I, like I said, I harassed my poor mother. I went to, I did gymnastics, uh, acting tap dance um singing uh fencing i mean i don't know it was just modeling i don't know you know i was just always uh busy and always really really interested i went to summer school every year uh i was in school almost and this is when they still had summer school and you could take elective things so it wasn't like summer school because you you have to go supplement it but i went to summer school because i was interested in stuff so i went to summer school i think almost every year that i was in school for something i did a theater camp for summer school i did i don't know god knows what but i i was always very busy and very engaged i See, did I do sports? Sports was not my thing, really, because I have asthma. I developed it as a child, and so I did. I like to run and stuff like that, but then once I got asthma, it, it just wasn't my thing. I um, was in forensics, which is like uh, forensics is like debate, except it, you don't actually debate. Uh, forensics is speaking. So uh, you go do that's relevant to what you ended yes, up doing. I mean, right. all of this, if you think about it, like yeah. I'm listening and I'm thinking, okay, she's a <laughs> Renaissance woman now, mm -hmm. and she's definitely a Renaissance girl mm -hmm. growing up with mm -hmm. all of these interests and all of that. And so it's really like served you well. Yes. I mean, it's all in the, the spot and all in the stew. But yeah, so forensics is, um, it's like a companion to debate as a kid. So basically you read uh, poems and readings and you go and you compete against other kids and you, you know, get, and, and I was in debate, of course, I was in debate and forensics. Um, and uh, yeah, I was just a really, and I, 
I started watching Nightline as a child. I was obsessed with it after the uh, Jim Jones tragedy. I was so obsessed with Nightline. I was a little kid, and I, I remember trying to get other kids to watch Nightline. They were like, what? Um, so, yeah, I was a weird kid. Uh, and Were you a Diane Sawyer fan? I was a Ted Koppel fan. Okay. I really liked Ted Koppel. I, I liked his interview style. And I, um, yeah, I, I loved information. I loved information. And I suppose I still do. I mean, it's just, yeah, I just love information. I like to get information. I like to understand and, and, um, and know what's going on. So if an adult at, uh, you know, a party at the house or what have you mm -hmm. came up to you at a, as a 10 year old girl and was like, I need you to pick one thing that you want to do when you grow up, Sherry, what mm -hmm. would your immediate response be? So as a kid, what I said is I want to be a lawyer. So, um, I like to say that I've done the hat trick of employment because there were three things I wanted to be as a kid and I've gotten to do all three. So that's pretty good, I think. Um, but yeah, my mom says that when I was little, I said, I want, I'm going to be a yoya because I couldn't pronounce it. And I didn't know any <laughs> lawyers and I didn't know any lawyers and I didn't know anybody who was a lawyer, not met a lawyer. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to be a yoya. And she was like, okay. That's pretty darn cute. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, hey. uh, so, um, okay. So you, you're this Renaissance, um, girl going through high school you go to Marquette yeah um and I find that often in those high school college and right out of college years like there's such formative years mm -hmm. where was there anything that like a, an obstacle during that time that you overcame or like a something that that gave you a, like a lot of independence and, and mm -hmm. extra confidence through, through something? Well, I don't know. You know, I mean, it's complicated. I mean, I was bused to school, so I went to a wealthy suburban high school. I was predominantly Jewish, um, which was really interesting because then culturally I got to like access and see and, and bagels and high holidays. And so like th that was really great. Like that was something that I got to understand, but it was also a cutting of a sense, you know, it cut me off from my local community and from the people I knew and understood. And it really changed the trajectory. And yet at the same time, it was not a belonging there. So um, I like to talk of it, of being caught between two bases. If you think about baseball, you know, you're not on first or second, you're just caught somewhere in between. And so that, that transition to being bused to this very wealthy school where people could ruin a Porsche one day and get another one the next week. And you have like a rusty car is a really interesting transition to say the least. So it was, it was massive code switching, like in the course of a day could have been although this is very interesting for me and i code switching is a relatively new term for for the for the young for the young folks and i don't dispute that people do it but i would say this and this is this is the the my my family my family life's quite com complicated my parents it's a little complicated but i will say this they were 
very, very good without meaning to and without purposely. It was not on purpose. I know it was not purpose because they were too busy to purposely do it. But they really made it clear to me that wherever you go, you show up as yourself. And so I don't ever remember code switching. You know what I mean? Like it, I didn't I, I just wasn't that person like I was from where I was from and I rode a bus to school. So I'm gonna, I'm not gonna lie. I'm gonna say like, Oh, I live around the corner. I don't, I ride a bus. And so I didn't. And even today as an adult, I don't, you know, I, I don't have another code. Like this is who I'm, this is my voice. This is what I'm talking about. Well, this is what I'm talking ra- to. You just yeah, I do I have bronchitis. Yeah, yeah. All right. All right. <laughs> so other than bronchitis, but yeah, you know, it's, and so that was interesting. I don't, that was not the issue. I think the issue was more just the alienation of not belonging there. And then having been there, no longer belonging where you're from, you know, you just don't belong anywhere at a certain point. Um, and so, but, but at the same time, I was a very uh, focused person. I was, um, you know, I wanted to go to college and I wanted to go to law school so that, you know, I had a very, and I think it's super important for kids to have long-term goals, right? Because it's something that's kind of pulling you to a direction. And, um, but Marquette was very different. I mean, Marquette had its ups and downs too, but it's a, it's a Jesuit college, which I am forever grateful uh, for the Jesuits. Um, I could not have been at a better place you know, uh, the, if you know anything about Jesuits, it's about intellect and education and questioning and asking questions. Reflection, mm-hmm. and community service. That's and right. all. My daughter, Grace, is like she wants to go to a Jesuit college mm-hmm. in a few months is right. when she'll know. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, I have to say that one of the other defining things uh, other than being from a Midwestern working class community was uh, Marquette and spending four years at a Jesuit institution that value thought. You know, um, and so I got an undergraduate degree in the history of philosophy, literally in thinking. Right. So that was so valuable for me. And Marquette also, you know, I was not an easy student. You know, I ran something called the Marquette Integrated Leadership Council, which really critiqued Marquette's uh, racial policies, how world history was taught. They got sick of me, but then they eventually gave me an award and sent me to a leadership program. So, you know, but and and again, you know, I remember at our church we used to go to the pastor said something about, oh, well, you know, going to school, you should be grateful going cause and all those problems because I gave press conferences. I mean, it was a situation. And uh, but my parents were always like, you know, F that, you know what I mean? You, you show up as you everywhere you go. And so it would be to deny your belief system, right. you know, if you weren't you. Like, right. Yeah, I get that. So I had a lot of support from them. Um, and it hadn't occurred to me that until that guy said that, that other black parents would be like, you shouldn't be causing that trouble. My parents never thought that. They were like, you tell them some more. You know what I mean? You tell them some more about what's wrong. So, and then Marquette, like I said, at the end of the day, they eventually respected the positions that I had and and honored me in a lot of ways. So it was a great relationship. And I saw that Northwestern just 
they did they did yeah Yeah. my last school law school yeah Yeah, law school but the university at large yeah that was a crazy situation um i was really surprised by that i mean i had been contacted uh, like a year ago about class notes or something and i was like oh you know they'll put a note about me i you know like they have little notes but they uh northwestern university writ large the whole university did a special um, magazine on 150 years of women at northwestern since women have been um admitted to Northwestern and I got to be in it and I got like a whole little box and everything uh, updating my notes. So I was really, I was really honored by that, you know, because Northwestern was great. You should be honored that you've you've earned it. (laughs) Um, So talk to us a little bit about kind of the, for the rest of us, kind of more right turns or um, instead of the, you're a little girl and you want to be a lawyer and you become a lawyer you know like that's like a linear path but um basically the origin story of how you came to dress for success Mm, in mm -hmm. in Oregon that's that's Mm -hmm. what I'm really interested in yeah so that's an interesting story um and there's a meta story and then there's a story I I kind of love the meta story but the I'll, I'll do both pieces of it so Ironically, you know, coming to Oregon was really at the lowest point in my life. You know, I was really just, things just were not anywhere near where they should have been. I had been working in television news and, um, and again, my parents raised apparently a rabble rouser. So, uh, I ended up, um, having a strong disagreement with my television station about how um, women and people of color were paid and treated at the station and ended up having to um, make a decision about uh, what they should do and what I should do. And what I will say about that is that um, things were changed. They actually ended up hiring uh, more diverse people, newsroom, a lot of things changed. Um, my name is not on any plaque there, but as a result of me being willing to really, uh, in my television career to make a change, many things change. So that, I, that happened. And I was like, I am tired of, uh, working every day of the week and fires and murders and standing out in the cold. And I'm like, this was interesting, but I'm going to go back and do something else. So I left television and uh, my ex-boyfriend is from, oh, this is a complex story, he's not really from Portland, but we'll say he's from Portland, but um, worked in Milwaukee with me and um, decided to move back here to Portland. So we were seeing each other and, you know, on and off for a couple of years and I was coming out and visiting. So I like to say that I have a, a seven, I've lived here five years, but I have a seven year relationship with Portland. So I have actually a long relationship with Portland. So he's coming to visiting and uh, was going to move here because he was here. And that summer I came out, uh, that relationship did not work out for some reasons. And I went back to Milwaukee um, because but but when I was here, I had interviewed uh, for a job at Albina Opportunities Corporation, but it now has a new name, which I told them at the time they needed a new name, but whatever. So um, didn't get that job. That relationship broke up and my dog died. 
so things were bad. I mean, I was just really, I sounds like a country song. Yes. Yes. And I like to think of it as, uh, the long night of the soul by Eckhart Tolle. I mean, I like him. Yeah. You Mm -hmm. know, everybody goes through that or will eventually go through that. And the question, uh, at that point is not, um, is it going to happen to you? The question is, what are you going to do while you're in it? And, how long are you going to stay there? You know, how long, how long is it going to take you to move through that? And it was just a death of so many things, including a literal death of my dog, you know, which was just a lot at once. And, uh, so I was really adrift a bit. I was like, you know, I know where I want to get to. I have all this experience and background, but somehow I'm not being able to figure out how to, how to bank shot this, you know, and I'm usually pretty good at it. Um, so I got back to Milwaukee and <clears throat> literally like four weeks or maybe, maybe not that long, like two weeks after I was back, I got a call from one of the people who interviewed me uh, uh, on the panel for the Albina job. And he said, well, you know, I know we didn't give you that job, but I'm going to have a job at my organization in the spring. And I don't know if you'd be interested in it. And I'm like, well, I don't know. You know, I, maybe I'll check back in the spring. I don't know. You know, like I'm not moving here with to be with this person and you know Portland is really all the ley lines are laid around that relationship so why would I go there you know so then I got a week later another call and it was from a recruiter and the recruiter had talked to another person who was on that panel totally different than the person who called me this person said they didn't hire you for this job, but you're great. And I really got to talk to you. And um, we're recruiting for the Urban League. Because at that time, Nikenge hadn't yet taken over the Urban League job. Okay. So they were like, oh, you, you know, we'd like to. And I'm like, what the heck? You know, like, why are these people calling me? Like, I like that's over. Like, that's done. And then a week later, I got another call from 503. And it was the former uh, or the, the founder of this branch of dress who said, I talked to a third person, totally different person who said, you really got to talk to her. I think she would be great, blah, blah, blah. And she said, would you come out to interview? And I said, well, I don't know. You know, like I, I was, it was kind of tied up in this thing and this is not happening and I don't know. And, and I said, well, let me think about it. And I really prayed and meditated on it. And I, I felt like for me, things work the best when I listen to what the universe is saying. Seemed to me that the universe kept calling from 503. <laughs> you know? Uh, that's, a, that's a spiritual uh, um, area code. There. Yes, yeah. that's mm-hmm. right. And so I, I prayed on it and I said, well, you know, Portland keeps calling me and I don't know why. Um, and it's not what I thought, but I'm going to go see. So I said, well, all right, I'll come, come out. They flew me out here. I met with the recruiter for the urban league job, met with dress and they were just like, Oh, we, we need you. You know, they didn't really have money for moving expenses. And they were like, but we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. And I was like, uh, you know, okay, we'll see. So I go back home and I, again, really meditate on it. And I, and I, I made a decision. I said, now, if I do this, I'm going to trust the universe in all aspects. I'm going to trust that it's going to be okay, that it's not going to emotionally be difficult. I'm going to, I'm going to place all my faith 
on this request. The universe is asking me this, then I'm going to respond and I'm going to trust this. So I did. And I, they found the money, they got moving allowance, I moved here. And um, it's been great. It's been great. Um, I've met amazing people, great friends, had great opportunities. And I, I believe it's because at the end of the day, I trust the universe and its decisions for me. And I uh, have like really, really strong faith in that. And so it can't be wrong because it was, it was good, you know? I love everything about that story. It's super inspiring. I do want to make sure the audience isn't misled. It hasn't all been, you know, roses and flowers. No, 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 no. I mean, you know, it's like moving any place, but I've lived a lot of places in the United States. I mean, I've from television to other work, I've lived in New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, Texas, uh, Milwaukee I've lived in Mexico I've lived in London I've lived in a lot of places and some places have been harder entries than other Portland was not really a hard entry for me honestly I, I think the thing for me in Portland is a couple of things one I am originally from the industrial Midwest right so I grew up in a town in Milwaukee 25 30 years ago looked a lot like Portland it's pretty white pretty working class Portland wasn't a psychological jump for me as it is for some people. I mean, if you come from Metro Atlanta or DC or whatever, yeah, this place can really rock your world. But I didn't. I came from Midwestern nice. You know, I understand that BS. I came from, like I said, a predominantly working class place. So, uh, you know, there's a lot about Portland that I understood better I think than maybe other people who come here who come from different backgrounds and experiences and that's I also think that's something people should think about when recruiting like if you're going to recruit people from New York and Chicago who come from these big metropolitan cities with strong black cultural centers and then say oh welcome to Portland I don't know why you're not happy you know there are black people in, in Indiana in it's Wisconsin. A and, it's a bait and switch. Yeah, but there are black people in Michigan, Detroit, Ann Arbor. We exist. And for us, this is not as big of a jump. It does not culturally um, feel quite as off. Even having lived in big cities, I still at my core understand a lot about this space. You know what I mean? So. Well, we are we are about out of time here. Um, the last question I'll end on is if you could pick one person alive today or, you know, don't go way back in time, but just that in, who inspires you. Oh, wow. That, um, you know, she'll, she loves us, but it really is my mother. My mother inspires me. My mother, I, my mother could probably choke me because I'm a difficult person. I'm not the most easiest person. I'm not the, the best kid. I Literally, my mother has called me every other day since I've been sick. And finally, I was like, you know what? Calling me every five minutes is making me angry but not feel better. But that being said. It's out of love. Yes, yes. Although it's, you could also smother someone to death out of love too. But, uh, you know, a lot of bad things you could do out of love. But that being said, my mother... And I've thought about this a lot. You know, my mother is uh, endured a lot of suffering and a lot of hardship and heartache. And yet she is an incredibly strong and determined person who 
is as good as her word. And I realized that my mother really taught me to hold those values. You know, you, you belong everywhere you are and you have an obligation though, to be as good as your word, to do what you say you're going to do, to work until the job is done, to stand up to and sustain uh, a, a substantial battering that life can give you. And so there's really no other person who's given me more understanding of what it means to live in the world as a free person uh, and ownership of myself than my mother. So That's beautiful. Well, I love ending on that. And I so appreciate you being on the show, Sherry. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Cheers. All right, folks, I'm doing something new here uh, with doing a recap or more like a reflection at the end of each of the podcast episodes. And I thought uh, this is a great way uh, to kind of share what I've reflected about after sitting with the learnings over the past couple days. And with Sherry Dunn, there was a lot there. Um, The things I learned in my podcast interview with Sherry is that she is out to revolutionize the business model of nonprofits. I, this is super important to me because I work with a lot of nonprofits um, pretty extensively, Friends of the Children and Emerging Leaders and a whole bunch of professional nonprofits. And there's a lot of models out there that make it really challenging for them to sustain ongoing just by way of constantly having to ask for money and how hard that gets year after year. Um, and it seems like that model is broken and that Sherry's onto something pretty huge here in that it's all about a hybrid model. And that can include things like pay for service um, and other investments as well as um, just, uh, you know, uh, kind of pay for performance type of models mixed in with donations and investments. And so I was just really, really intrigued by how she thought about doing that and how she's being a role model for some of the partnerships she's done with tech companies like Treehouse and other government entities. Um, I don't know whether it's uh, her as a philosophy major and how she kind of unlearns, unpacks, and comes at things from a different perspective, but I think we can all take away something in this interview. So hope you enjoy, and if you can, um, on your podcast app, rate uh, the um, How You Feel About Cause and Effect podcast and give any feedback um, that you want just by directly reaching out to me. We'd love that. Thanks so much. Cheers. Cheers.